Coming up on today's podcast. It's extraordinary, actually. I was reading a book just on the bus as I was coming back to meet with you, and it's called The Spontaneous Healing of Belief. I just happened to open it on my Kindle by Greg Braden. And Greg Braden talks about quantum physics and read very, very short. Every particle interacts with every other particle. And for us, every action we take in some extraordinarily physical ripple effect impacts on everything else. Now, we don't need to understand the physics. We don't even need to to be into metaphysics to appreciate that there's something there about everything we do having a knock-on impact. So I think that's the first, that is the starting point. It remains the starting point for us all is to do our little bit wherever we are. And then the question is, to what extent can we, by training and by education and by example, help others who are responsible for really, really major decision-making and problem-solving to apply these these skills? And I think that's just going to be, a, it's just going to be a lifelong journey for all of us, given you know, whatever impact we may have, wherever we may be. Today, I'm exploring how mediation has developed since its introduction into the world of commercial dispute resolution in the early 1990s. How can this process, the skills of mediation, be applied in a wider context to help us all resolve some of the more challenging problems facing society? And could this approach even be used to help global leaders to resolve global challenges? I'm Jane Gunn, the Barefoot Mediator, and this is a show where we have some of those deep conversations about issues and choices that are impacting society and our lives right now. In today's episode, I am speaking with John Starrett, a lawyer and mediator and an author and the founder of Core Solutions in Scotland, who has been identified as a global elite thought leader in Who's Who Legal, And we are discussing the growth of mediation and its role in an ever-divided world. So, John, welcome. Thank you, Jane. Nice to see you, or nice to speak with you. (laughs) We were just just recollecting before we came on that we last met about four years ago on a retreat up in Malham, didn't we? Yeah, and I suspect it's more than four years ago, given that four years ago we were just about to enter into the and um, yeah, that was that was a, a lovely occasion, and uh, yeah. it seems so long. And certainly because I have a huge admiration for all that you do and what you have done in and around mediation. So thank you for inviting me to take part in this podcast. I also remember actually, John, coming up to Scotland to do some training with the yeah. Church of Scotland. Do you remember? And we were in a, in a castle. <laughs> we were in Carberry Tower, as yes. it was called. Yes, and that was the, that was when we were training the the first or second batch of mainly church ministers who became the pioneers in something called Place for Hope, which yeah. was the Church of Scotland's mediation initiative. In fact, that's become now an ecumenical movement really in Scotland. But that's right, you came up and helped with the assessment, Jane. Yeah, yeah. God. that's a while ago. That's yeah. it's a while ago. While ago. <laughs> yes, indeed, yeah. So, John, take us back a little bit, because uh, you and I are a similar age, and I think we've both been in the mediation world for, for some time. So how did your journey in mediation start? Well, it's, it's interesting, actually. I was reflecting on that this morning. So I I pursued a conventional career. Not really. I ended up at the bar, at the Scottish bar, um, having decided that being a solicitor was not for me. And actually, I hadn't really wanted to go into the law at all. I studied law at university but had had aspirations to go into politics and into business, but somehow or other I ended up at the at the Scottish Bar and had a 
a really busy, I suppose, in conventional terms, successful career uh, at the Scottish Bar. But after a few years, I became restless, Jane. And for all sorts of reasons, I, I wanted to do something a bit different. I remember having an experience, almost a spiritual experience, actually, one one time we were on holiday in France. And, and anyway, what, what came to me was get off the conveyor belt, dare to to do something different, make a difference. So for, for all sorts of reasons, which we won't go into just now, I took an interest in advocacy skills training, uh, which really was was not done at all, in, in, in certainly in Scotland. It was only starting, I think, in the, in, in England as well. And this is this is where, where advocates and barristers were actually learning the skills of advocacy before starting their careers. So I went off around the world one summer, really as a kind of mini sabbatical, to learn about advocacy skills training. I came back to the Scottish Bar. I suggested that I take some time away from practice to set up a, an advocacy skills program, which I, I did. I became the first director of training and education at the Faculty of Advocates, which is the body uh, of which all Scottish advocates or barristers are, are members. Uh, and that set me on a path. And, and six months became 18 months, became three years, ultimately became eight years. And during that eight-year period, I learned all about, all about working, working with people much more than perhaps I'd done before, about skills training, about developing new ways of thinking. And during that period, I went off to Harvard, and I studied, studied. I, I learned under Roger Fisher of Getting to Yes fame, the Harvard negotiation course. I mean, that just, that changed my life and my world because I could, for the first time, realize that disputes didn't have to be resolved in this adversarial win-lose paradigm, which I, I loved. I mean, I loved being in court. I loved demolishing the other side's argument, but suddenly began to realize that something else could be done. And that same summer, Jane, I undertook the Cedar Summer School, which happened to be in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. Again, I suppose the lights came on for me and David Richbell, Carl Mackey, Bill Marsh, all these folk were there. And it was maybe only the second or third of, of their training courses. It took me two or three years after that to realize that this is really where I wanted to go. But I decided just after taking Silk, actually becoming a Queen's Council in 1999, that I really, if, if I ended up being at the bar for the rest of my life and even though I ended up on the, on the judicial bench, it wouldn't really be what I wanted to do. In fact, I remember saying it would be a bit of a failure. And so I decided in the early, it's very early 2000, 2001, to end my practice in the law and to embark on a new journey. As, as I said before, I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to do something different. I was passionate about helping people to solve problems constructively, cooperatively, you know, that, that whole business of non-adversarial problem-solving, collaboration, cooperation felt deeply right for me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I embarked on this on this new career, I suppose. I, I mean, I, I set up a small business, Core Solutions. We began by doing training that generated some income. We did one, in, one mediation the first year, four mediations the second year, seven mediations the third year, that sort of thing. And there it went, and and uh, yeah, it was it was a remark. Looking back, it seems it seems remarkable. Some people say it seems brave, but it just seemed at the time it was just it was the right thing to do. I mean, we we only have one life, and I wanted to do something more, something a bit different with it. I was and I've been very privileged because the last and it's now what twenty three years have been absolutely extraordinary. You know what a privilege it has been to do all the various things that you and I and so many of our colleagues. Are, are enabled to do. So there's the story. 
I agree, John. Wonderful. And uh, I, I just tell us a little bit. I, we can't see because we're, we're on audio, but behind yeah. your head, you've got a very um, interesting uh, drawing diagram that we both of us have used a lot involving a cheese and some mice. So tell us about that. Well, my daughter, Jennifer, uh, created this for me just at the start of lockdown when I began to mediate using Zoom. Now, I knew nothing about online platforms. And <laughs> above all else, Jane, I, I took the view that it was not, you know, mediation was all about personal contact and, and, and being in person. So the idea of doing this online was anathema to me. But gradually, I realized that if I was going to put food on the table, I was going to have to do something in the in the pandemic. So Jennifer, long story short, this is the backdrop to my presence online. And so what the backdrop shows is that piece of cheese uh, with three mice, each of which has a different vantage point. One mouse at the top is looking down on a triangle, the triangle that he, it sees of the cheese. Another mouse on the on what is the left-hand side of the viewer is looking at the square end of the cheese. And the third mouse is looking at the the, the, the broad rectangular dimension that the and it's completely different because it's white and it's pockmarked and it's it looks completely different. Uh, the point being, of course, that is that everybody views even the same set of facts. It is just one piece of cheese after all. Everybody views it differently from their perspective, from their vantage point, and they each think that they're right. And of course, they are right, and <laughs> they are right from their perspective because you know, there's no such thing as only one right and one wrong. So yeah. I use that, and it's quite remarkable. And I use that at the beginning of mediations with a flip chart when I often have breakfast with the parties and I do a little spiel at the end of breakfast and I draw this up first. And it is remarkable how that simple visual aid locates people in an understanding that, hey, actually, the other, whoever the other might be may have a different point of view, and that point of view may just be valid, and it may be just as valid as the point of view of the of the first party. So yeah, it's it's fascinating, isn't it, how these simple things can, can make a difference. So that's why it's there. Alongside on the wall, I've also got behind me what's called the, the cognitive bias codex. And what that does, it illustrates, I think it's over a hundred different cognitive biases that affect us all. And again, I mean I don't go into the detail of it, just having it there allows me to talk a little bit about, I don't know, confirmation bias, attribution error, reactive devaluation, the things that can be so helpful to us as mediators as we try to help people to understand, parties to understand why they think the way that they do. Yeah, I, I do find these diagrams so helpful and having a flip chart, being able to draw <laughs> when you're yeah. in yeah. a mediation. And I remember using that cheese in uh, actually in a boardroom and talking about who the big cheese, you know, like, in other words, <laughs> yep. who or what is the big cheese? So that was uh, quite useful. But it's interesting, Jane, isn't it? You make the point there that it's useful to have a flip chart. I mean, nowadays, yeah. we move so far towards technology and away from the, the rudimentary, but the spontaneity of being able to just create something ourselves that may be quite basic and even quite crude, but there's something about the impact of that which can make a difference, I think, can't it, to, to the observer. I don't know if you found that yourself when you, when you use yeah. flip charts. They have inevitably provided breakthrough moments for me and for lots of reasons because, and, and our, we used to describe this in our training, they change the dynamic. You have to stand up to go to the flip chart. You can invite other people to stand up. So just that act of shifting the energy in the room, standing up, moving to a flip chart, drawing something, yeah. um, breaking some stats. It's just there's so many 
very interesting, as you say, elements of psychology and understanding how people see things, uh, what they're experiencing in the room, even online. And you can still use a flip chart or, you know. Oh, yeah, just, absolutely. I often wheel a flip chart in, yeah. yeah. Or stick something up on a slide. <laughs> but th th these things that sort of break this, um, you know, one-dimensional view uh, and the linear thinking, you go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I relate to that. And uh, yeah, I've had many, many breakthroughs using pictures, actually. Pictures. Yeah. And I think it's easy to diminish the importance of that. And particularly when you're familiar with doing it, that we can do it quite quickly and move on to the next thing and not actually not, not let it have its impact. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, so just taking the time, just pausing and letting the apparently simple, but actually the really helpful have its moment and allow people to digest it. People who are often first time audiences, viewers, if you like, of that particular technique or tool. I developed this sort of idea a few years back, John, of slow mediation in that we'd always had this sense that a mediation is a one day, you know, piece. It starts at nine in the morning and it goes on till six at night or whenever. And I, you know, I was experiencing in some of my mediations and, and we might go on to talk about some of mine were in the medical negligence field, that people needed time to process their own feelings, what they were thinking, what they were experiencing. And that sometimes trying to cram it all into a day wasn't working and that maybe we could go more slowly, we could chop the mediation up into chunks and do a little bit today and maybe a bit tomorrow or a bit next week. And I found that that works even better mm -hmm. because you haven't got to be reserving, a, you know, a building somewhere and traveling. Oh, and yeah. um, so I guess technology has helped that approach for me is to say, well, we could do it in bits and it doesn't always work, but sometimes people do need time to process their own thoughts and feelings and you know and then come back when they've done that yeah and I, and I think the key thing here is that no one size fits all i mean what we've got to do is design to use the jargon design the process that meets the needs of the parties and of course there are some situations perhaps particularly commercial situations where the one day model is just all that's available and it and it, and it works it works because um, that's what they want, it's what they're able to fit into. But I think the ability to be flexible is really important. You talk about slow mediation. I was talking the other day about mediating minimally. Oh, and, yes. and, and by that, I mean trying not to get in the way of the parties doing what they customarily do, which is sort out their conflicts or disputes or disagreements themselves. I mean, we are brought in because something is particularly sticky and they haven't been able to do what they would do perhaps 90% of the time. But our job is not to superimpose ourselves on that and become the hero. It seems to me that the less we can do to enable the parties to do what they want to do and can do and need to do themselves, the better it is. So slow mediation, mediating minimally, these are all little, little indications, aren't they, really, of the, of the role that we play. And for me, it all comes back to, I did a course in transformative mediation, and then it all comes back to the one principle of self-determination. It's the party's power, giving power back to the parties and they decide. And, and we might move on to thinking about that because I think that's a very, very useful principle in the times we live in. And, and I've been looking at, and I wonder what your thoughts are on how valuable the skills uh, and the tools and the mindset of mediation are in the complex times we live in. For me now, almost the primary principle of the work that I do is party autonomy. Yeah. It's, it's restoring to people what they would hopefully customarily have 
and would not ordinarily do, and that's make decisions for themselves. Mm. Uh, I think that's the great, it's not an invention, but it's the great innovation that, that mediation brings to dispute resolution. And it is that which differentiates it, of course, so much from litigation, arbitration, and other situations yeah. where a third party makes a decision. And I think that we, you know, we run a risk if we link mediation too closely to arbitration, for example, because they are fundamentally different, it seems to me. Uh, and yes, that our job is to enable parties to to regain control of the situation and feel the responsibility and the possibilities that come with with autonomy, self determination, as you say. In the times that we in which we live, however, it's not easy, is it? I mean, it's, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was reflecting on this actually before we came on to the podcast and thinking about the I, I think the times of relative optimism and hope that we had in the 1990s and 2000s what i would call a kind of getting to yes era where it seemed as though we were on an upward journey an onward movement and getting to yes principles were seeping into the ether as it were we were all being trained and lawyers and parties and others were learning about interest-based approaches to problem solving and that seemed to be the natural direction of travel just the natural evolution of things and I think it's not going too far to say that that is no longer the case. Yeah. Uh, certainly in much of what's happening globally, much of what's happening nationally, even what's happening in communities, there seems to be a regression. And it's, it's I suppose, captured in the ideas of populism and polarisation and antagonism, which seem to be so prevalent these days. So I, I, I think it's a real concern. I think, it, I think it's... it's it's difficult to hold on to that optimism. And it's interesting, I know that one of your recent podcast interviewees was Ken Cloak, and I've just finished reading Ken's latest, and he says, last book, The Magic <laughs> of Creation. And the theme that runs throughout that book is the quest for higher order skills. Yes. And the scaling up of what we know works at the small scale level and even the mid-scale level to the largest of human uh, conflicts, problems and issues, climate change, war, um, pandemics, and so forth. And I think that's really challenging because I think the scaling up of what we know works in, in the intimacy of the smaller situations in which we find ourselves, the scaling up of that into politics, say, into diplomacy, into the kind of decisions that are made at a global level is really hard to achieve. And, and that, you know, that's a, it's a whole conversation, I think, around the possibility of that. Obviously, we have to strive for that, but uh, it's not clear to me that Vladimir Putin, for example, would be all that interested in an interest-based approach to negotiation. No, I, I agree, John, but I've always looked at it to say, where can we start? We can start with ourselves. We can always only start with ourselves. So, you know, do we and can we apply these principles in the in the life and work that we live then can we encourage others particularly those of us who are mediators or trainers or coaches or whatever can we encourage others to see the benefit of applying those principles in their team or in their organization and i think we can only spiral out from there and you know i think we've been doing it we started off you and i in the legal profession and in commercial disputes but uh, and other disputes family disputes facts but perhaps now is the time i think to take it out into the wider community as ken is saying and perhaps that's now where the challenge is is how do we overcome this innate desire 
if you go back to arbitration and litigation to have someone else resolve our problems for us, whether that's on a, an individual or a commercial or a global basis, someone will sort it for me. Or do we take responsibility for self-determination mm -hmm. at those levels? And what are the skills and tools I need to have the conversations and with who to enable us to reach a collaborative decision about things that are troubling us? And I do think it's a huge task, but I think, again, if we can teach the skills and the tools and we can practice and demonstrate them, yeah, we're not going to, you and I are not going to go mediate with, <laughs> with President Putin, but, you know, it is about creating a, a culture and, and, and an ethos where we show that it works. Yeah, I think that is the challenge, because I think that people like Bill Urie and Roger Fisher would have said exactly the same 30 years ago yeah. and 20 years ago. And we have been doing a lot of that. I mean, Urie's been all around the world, let's face it, you know, in some of the most difficult of situations. And it would be quite interesting to know what he thinks today, for example, in the light of developments in so many different parts of the world in which yeah. he would have been active. But I think you make probably two points, at least in what you say. One is that we we can actually only do it by being exemplars ourselves. The footer I have on my emails, if I can just find it somewhere, just give me a second. It's a quotation from Desmond Tutu. And Desmond Tutu says, do your little bit of good where you are. It's those little bits of good put together that overwhelm the world. So that's a good start. Yeah. Tolstoy said, everybody thinks about changing the world, but few of us think about changing ourselves. So again, it's back to Gandhi's be the change. So I think you're right to point to what we can do. It's extraordinary, actually. I was reading a book just on the bus as I was coming back to, to meet with you, and it's called The Spontaneous Healing of Belief. I just happened to open it on my Kindle by Greg Braden, and Greg Braden talks about quantum physics mm -hmm. and read very, very short. Every particle interacts with every other particle, and for us, every action we take in some extraordinarily physical ripple effect impacts on everything else. Yes. Now, we don't need to understand the physics. We don't even need to, need to be into metaphysics to appreciate that there's something there about everything we do having a knock-on impact. So I think that's the first, that is the starting point. It remains the starting point for us all is to do our little bit wherever we are. And then the question is, to what extent can we, by training and by education and by example, help others who are responsible for really, really major decision-making and problem-solving to apply these, these skills. And I think that's just going to be a, it's just going to be a lifelong journey for all of us, given you know, whatever impact we may have, wherever we may be. We certainly tried in Scotland at the time of the independence referendum in 2014 to introduce something which is non-binary uh, and non-antagonistic. So we set up a body called Collaborative Scotland. And Collaborative Scotland's purpose was to try to discuss the constitutional issue without reference to the merely yes or no binary response the, the very simple question Putin was being was suggesting and the same of course could and should have applied to Brexit because these are much much more complicated much more interesting much more nuanced much more paradoxical topics than the very simple approach of politics uh, led us to believe so I think that's you know that's where we can begin to have an influence now in, in our small-ish country of Scotland, we actually probably did reach quite a lot of people, particularly with our commitment to respectful dialogue, which had an eight-point protocol for, for behaviour during the, the referendum campaign. So 
There are things that, that can be done, but my goodness me, how quickly we, they, whoever the, the people may be, revert back to more polarized, antagonistic behavior. And so perhaps the final comment at this stage would be, although we have this tendency to sink back into polarization and antagonism, we now understand through neuroscience and the work of people like Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman, that there's a neuroscientific basis for this and that we are, we are hardwired to um, fight or flee when we're presented with risks. In the old days, it was physical risk, but any threat to us now uh, can create that response. But we also understand that we have what he would describe as system two thinking, the ability to step back, to pause, to reflect, to behave more rationally, more reasonably. So I suspect the more we educate ourselves and others with whom we work and who we might influence to understand this, the more hope we might have, because these are significant breakthroughs in our understanding of the human condition, psychology, and the way the brain works. So harnessing these may be one of the ways that we can move things forward. I think it's the power of choice, John. And I think maybe when you and I trained, we did the skills and the tools, but we didn't have that psychological. Absolutely. Background, and we've now yeah. got that, as you say. And, you know, the majority of people wouldn't have that. But again, we can begin to, I mean, even your cheese demonstration is demonstrating how we think and see things. So, you know, bringing Absolutely. that into our work. Yeah. So the question, Jane, would be, to what extent do contemporary mediation skills training courses include significant elements of neuroscience, for example, the way the brain works. I know that our course, until we parked it a wee while ago, did. We, we spent quite a bit of time on, on, on that, and I still include it in all the training. I do a lot of training now for uh, the Scottish government and others in, in public office, and I always start with the, the neuroscience stuff, but I, I don't know how much that is, is, is okay. carried out yeah. The bit I focused on in, in our training in, in London, and I know the London School of Psychology did have a course mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that did major on that, but I don't think particularly other, they're very sort of fact skills based rather than diving into the you know, neuroscience. And isn't that interesting that as a progressive movement, we certainly were a progressive movement, we like so many movements become stuck. You know, in a in the received wisdom and a certain way of doing things, a certain pattern, a certain paradigm, actually, which is really no longer uh, sufficient mm -hmm. for the needs of the day, and indeed no longer represents the knowledge that we have yeah. these days. So maybe we should start a campaign for yeah. science and cognitive bias to be taught more generally. I mean, actually, I say that slightly with my tongue in cheek, but my goodness me. It's absolutely at the core, isn't it, of a better understanding of, of who we are and how we behave with each other? Well, the, the, the area I focused on in my uh, training the last few years, which you know, isn't only for mediators, is what's this third level of development. So, you know, level one, you learn the skills. Level two, you practice the skills. You go out and sort of see well, what works, what doesn't work. Where do I meet a where do I meet a roadblock? But the third level of professional development, whether you're a mediator, a doctor or a CEO, is who am I? Mm. What is my experience of myself? How do I uh, come to better understand myself and the difference that I make in the circumstances that I'm in? And you know that's a hard that's a hard training to do. It is, it is isn't it? Yeah. And so many people are, I'm going to say, frightened. Certainly, 
yeah, perhaps fear that because it does require a journey into the self. And if you take something like Donald Trump, for example, my understanding of Donald Trump's background is that his mother came from the, the Outer Hebrides in Scotland. She came from a very strict uh, Presbyterian backdrop. His father or grandfather came from Germany, I think, and in fact was possibly a, an illegal immigrant or, or something of that sort. Donald Trump probably grew up in, in a quite straightened circumstances, possibly without much love. I don't know. I, I speculate. Mm -hmm. Certainly remember hearing a college friend of saying, a friend of his saying, or acquaintance of his saying, there didn't seem to be much soul uh, behind the face. So Donald Trump may meet the standard classification of a narcissist and, and somebody for whom it would be very difficult, actually, to look behind for him to inquire, who, really, who is he really? And why is he like he is? And yet he may become the most powerful person in the world yes. in just you know a few months' time. So it is interesting, isn't it, uh, how how all of this uh, this stuff is all available to us, but we operate so often on such a super, superficial level. It's interesting because I I mean when I was training with David Richborough, who was a colleague of both of ours, yeah, um, and I used the word love in our training, and people yeah. went, oh, you know, we've never heard lawyers using that word yeah. before. Yeah. And and we explained why that was important and why we had to acknowledge that, you know, you either operate from a place of love or a place of fear and knowing where your own response comes from and being able to understand that is was a fundamental part, again, of, you know, just just talking about that even. And, you know, it, it, it may be that that work that you did and, and dear David it, it encouraged us all to do was what helped me to become comfortable with the use of the word love. So when I, um, I've, I've done quite a lot of work with the NHS here in Scotland over the last few years, and I have been asked to give addresses to various conferences. And the title of my address has often been Love Over Fear. And, and, you know, I, and I actually make a play of love. And I make the point, it's not erotic love, it's not superficial love, it's a, it's a much deeper, much more, what do we want to say, profound um, meaning, but, but these two words, love and fear, I suppose that the almost at the opposite end, polarities, as it were, of the continuum of life, are really probably un underneath just about everything that that yeah. we experience, yeah. positively, negatively, in the world. Yeah, and understanding what our own experience, or even our our imagination of what those words mean, yeah. is you yeah. know, again, that's going quite deep for many people. Well, it's interesting. I mean, one of the key phrases in my report for the Cabinet Secretary up here in Scotland, Cabinet Secretary for Health, when I carried out a review into allegations of bullying and harassment in NHS Highland back in 2019, one of the key phrases was, I think, a fear cannot be the driver. Yeah. And that, that, that was lifted. But the reality is that fear is the driver so often. If I take the NHS, and we touched on this perhaps earlier, so many of the issues that arise in the NHS seem to me to be driven by people's fear, fear of being blamed, of being shamed, of being held to account, of, of, of held to account to unrealistic targets, unrealistic expectations, fear of of, of um, just not, not matching what, what is unrealistic. And of course, that leads then to accusations of bullying or perceptions of bullying and, and often the person who feels bullied then becomes a bully themselves or perceived to be bullied 
of others and and it's 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 remarkable it just feeds on itself and, and rebounds i think i used especially rebounds throughout the system from the very yeah. highest ministerial level right down to the person at, at the um, at the coal face as it were so yeah finding that finding the ability to shift away from fear towards a people-centered compassionate and let's use another word which is touchy-feely kind kind world will mean that people will operate more effectively We'll get more bangs for less bucks. There'll be less staff turnover. There'll be better output. And above all, in the example of the NHS, patients will have a better experience and probably will be, be looked after better. Um, and that's the journey. So, it, that, so that's, that love and fear continue as a journey that we're on in so many different uh, situations, I think, in the world. It's fantastic to be able to talk about this, John. And, and, and you know, I see the world going back to what we can do. I see the world being fear-driven mostly now. We seem to sort of be in this cycle of crisis, which yeah. is driven by fear. And we've lost this ability to be compassionate and kind with each other. And we see that on social media and in the way people treat each other. So, you know, there's some work for us to do yet. Well, it is. And I don't want to be an apologist for either Presidents Putin or Netanyahu, but underneath the behaviour of these two individuals and, and those then who who act uh, on their instruction must almost inevitably lie fear. And I remember Ken Cloak again, uh, dear Ken, talking about fear, talking about anger, anger on the surface. If you scrape away the surface, there's fear underneath that. If you yeah. scrape away the surface again, there's a, a need for belonging. And underneath that, there's a quest for love. Yes. And, you know, again, talking about that in the context of these extraordinarily painful huge uh, wars seems potentially trite and glib but you know we've, we've got to work in that in that area too and, and and try to understand what lies underneath what lies behind so much of what goes on my my blog post today which i'll put a link to underneath is exactly about that and it's a it's a story from thomas crumb is crumb's book do you know thomas crumb's book the magic of conflict oh yes yes uh, yes but it's about, you know, it, it, it's about how you dig deeper when you, as a mediator, when you want to know, well, why do people want what they want? You know, what's behind their demands yeah. and their requests? And quite often it is this desire to feel okay about themselves. It's this desire not to lose face and to, yeah. and to feel, yeah, to feel loved even. <laughs> well, interesting, towards the start of the, uh, Ukrainian war, or U the war involving Ukraine, yeah. I wrote a blog and it was Dear President Putin. And it was just here the question, you know, what happened in your childhood? Yeah, you know? I read that. I read what, that. What, what, what went through? Yeah. And of course, it never quite reached him as far as I know. <laughs> I, I'm still here, never to tell it was easy to to ridicule that sort of thing but you know it's it's part of the multi-dimensional approach that we know to to problem solving is to understand the fear of where people are coming from and why and in the case of of both russia and israel the fears of existential threats to their to their very continuation and, and whether we like it or not or approve it or not and uh accept it or not that there is a reality there for 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 significant numbers of people that we need to take into account in our discussion about how to try to solve these things. You have to work. You have to work with it. Perhaps we could put a link to your dear Mr. Putin <laughs> blog at the bottom of this. Well, podcast, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> 
tell about your books. You've written a couple of books, haven't you? Well, I, well, I've, I've, I've got, I think, three books partially written, 30,000 words or whatever, but I'm a perfectionist. And I can never quite bring them to final fruition. So what I've defaulted to doing, Jane, is to gathering together, to gather together all my, all my, but, but many of my writings over the last few years, my blog posts, my, I write regularly in the newspapers. So I, so I gather them, the, the best of them, and try and put them into some sort of order. And I have published two of these under the headings, a Mediator's Musings, Volumes 1 and 2. And in the case of the first volume, uh, proceeds go to cancer research because my daughter, uh, a few, few years ago, had, had cancer, recovered very quickly, very grateful to see. And then the, the second one towards stroke research because I myself had a stroke a couple of years ago for, for, for which, from which, again, I'm very pleased to say I, I, I quickly recovered. But these are two areas where... There's much work to do. So anyway, if anybody feels inclined to support either cause or even just to read the books, they're available on Amazon and Mediator's Musings. Excellent. John, I look forward to uh, dipping into those myself. Thank so you. just I'd, I'd love to sort of wonder where we wrap this up and what your sort mm. of final thoughts would be for people who are listening. I mean, I think I go back to the thought that we need to focus on what we can do where we are. There's something here about, about leadership too, I think, and, and you've touched on that from time to time. So I think doing what we can, where we can, and doing the very best that we can in the circumstances in which we find ourselves, that's, that's hard enough. Yes, yes. Uh, but I was, I was away for a few days recently and I read a couple of books and they, they gave me some insight into, I think, the kind of leadership that I would certainly look for and which I think we've been missing now largely in the world. One of the books was by Baroness Cathy Ashton, who was the UK commissioner to the European Union and became effectively the foreign minister for the European Union for a number of years. And she writes very, very uh, movingly and engagingly about her various experiences as the EU's top diplomat. And the other book, completely different topic, was by Paul Johnson, who's the uh, director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, for which my son happens to work. But Paul Johnson is probably the leading independent commentator on economics and public finances in the UK. Each of these books was extraordinarily well written, but they're characterised, I think, by maybe two or three attributes which would be good to hold on to and think about. One is humility, okay. you know, accepting the limitations of who they are, what they are, and what they can achieve. The other is courage. They're able to they, they, they call things out and they tell them as they are. Another is openness. And I think that particularly these days is is a, is a worry, isn't it? When you look at the post office recently, the post office and the experience there, I suspect, is, is simply symptomatic of a number of, of, of different circumstances. So there's the openness and transparency uh, about what's really happening, I think, is 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 really important. And and the taking of taking of responsibility. Uh, so all of these, uh, these are characteristics, they're attributes of great leadership. And I think that, yeah, we would we would do well to look for these. And so far as we can, Jane, to model them in ourselves. Yeah, and one of the things that's come yeah. out of all these interviews is that, you know, we are all leaders. We don't have to have a title. We're all leaders. And, you know, what are those attributes that we hope to reflect and to see in others? And uh I don't know if you have anybody in particular that you see as uh, reflecting those attributes that you would look up to today. And, uh, and for yeah. me, they're not generally those people in high places. They're not, are they? No, they're not. Um, 
That's interesting. I, I'm 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 going to throw two at you actually, just because you gave me a little bit of forewarning about this. One would be because it's current, Sir Nicholas Winton, who is the the, the subject of the film One Life, right. starring Anthony Hopkins, and it's about this banker who, during the Second World War, managed to bring to freedom hundreds of Czechoslovakian school children, and it was an extraordinary act of of leadership and sacrifice. And complete humility. When you see him appearing on That's Life with Esther Ranson in his later life, you, you, you know, just, just the man is, is so, oh, just so humble. Um, but the title of the book upon which the film was based was by his daughter. I mean, I think it's called If It's Not Impossible. But I think I, I think there's that theme, isn't there? there are very few things are impossible, but we've got to believe that we can make them happen. Yeah. And so that's one. The other character I was going to refer to is Ted Lasso. I don't know how many of your listeners will have watched the Ted Lasso series. We only picked up on it last summer. And it is a fantastic example of humility, honesty, decency, and, and courage. And let me just see if I can find, there's a quotation from Ted Lasso, which if I can find it quickly, Jane, might be a, a good note to end on, because I wrote about this in a, in a recent blog. Yeah, there's one point where Ted Lasso says this, I hope that either all of us or none of us are judged by the actions we take in our weakest moments, mm -hmm. but rather for the strength we show if and when we're given a second chance. Uh, just just, just a lovely thought. So don't judge people, particularly when they're down and out and trying their best. Maybe they've made a mistake. And, and, and always try to give people the benefit of the doubt. And that, and that that came out of a of our discussion about forgiveness, and I think again, you know, we think about the power that comes from something like Nelson Mandela saying, "Let bygones be bygones. Let's move on. Let's let go of the past and and start afresh." So I think all of that, lots yeah. of thoughts there uh, to, to to ponder. Wonderful. Gosh, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you again and actually to be able to record it. So. Thank you, John. Well, I hope it comes back okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> great pleasure, Dave. Thank you so much. It's been um, it's been fun, and, and as always, it's nice to see you, and, and, and great to have a chat. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please do subscribe to the Barefoot Survival podcast series. And if you would like to access my free video series for managing in times of change, challenge and crisis, please go to janegunn.co.uk forward slash video. The link is in the show notes.